Thanks, Molly. Well, good morning, Twin Cities Church. We are continuing our series on the book of Philippians, what it means to participate as a church in the progress of the gospel. I think all of us have had at times, in fact, I could probably say with 100% certainty, that all of us have had, when we have been in moments of suffering, significant suffering, all of us have had people come up to us and say something like, find joy in your trials, right? Or, you know that God is going to work this for the good, right? Or, as Paul is stating here in this chapter, hey, rejoice in the, play, in the presence of your sufferings. All of us have had that. All of us have had people say that to us. And all of us have, have probably said that to others. And it is a, uh, we, we, you know, as Christians that know those passages that get quoted to us when we're in the midst of suffering, um, we know that those are true statements made to us from Scripture. Um, and yet, and, and so we don't want to completely blow them off or feel offended, um, but there's a side to us as well that wants to just tell them to, to shut up and leave me alone if you're really not going to comfort me in the midst of my suffering, right? All of us have had those responses, and all of us have been on both sides of that. I'm, I'm pretty confident that that's the case. And here we come to a passage where in the midst of suffering, Paul is indeed commanding us to rejoice. Now, we've also had experiences where we are suffering a little bit, and yet we have somebody in our spheres, or we observe somebody who we know has undergone a lot worse suffering than we have had, and then we start self-condemning and saying, you know what, how can I act so selfishly or complain so much when I see that person who has endured a lot more stay positive. And so we also have these moments where we aspire to deal with our suffering better because we've had people among us that have done a better job at suffering than we have. And so we want to kind of, we kind of to some degree want to discard people that are trying to encourage us to be more encouraged in the face of suffering and to be more optimistic. Uh, and we don't like that, but yet we also aspire to do it, right? And so I think we see something here in the presence of Paul where who, would, who are we to say to Paul or to disregard Paul because the sufferings that he experienced are beyond usually for us what our sufferings are. And he, in several passages through scripture and one in particular I believe it's in in second Corinthians he kind of goes through a whole list of all of the sufferings that he's endured and he says in Colossians that I am still filling up what is lacking when I compare my life with Christ's afflictions and I'm not there yet and so Jesus instructs Paul to rejoice and Paul then in turn instructs us to rejoice and he has this statement here where he says Rejoice, yes, again I say rejoice. And then he gives the reason. He gives the reason that he can rejoice, and he gives the reason 
why he can instruct us to, enjo- to rejoice. He says, For I am confident that through your prayers and the Spirit of God, I will be delivered. And so you've got to ask yourself, well, what does he mean? What does he mean to be delivered? All of us, I think, when we would, when we would first read that, or going through our own suffering, or maybe having insight into Paul's suffering of being in prison and of being beaten and being put in stocks like the story out of Acts 16 says, um, we would immediately think deliverance means the removal of my suffering. But that's not how Paul goes on to continue to explain it. He says that he wants, that he will, he's confident that he will be delivered but to be delivered doesn't mean that his suffering is going to end to be relieved to be to be delivered in the midst of suffering by paul's definition is that he wouldn't be ashamed at his conduct in the midst of the suffering and that he would be able to experience in his body full courage so that Christ would be honored in the midst of his suffering. That's what deliverance to Paul means. Deliverance is not the suffering is going to end. Deliverance to Paul is that I will endure my suffering with courage so that Christ is honored through my suffering. And then he goes on to say that to live is Christ. So he's going to live his life in the midst of suffering for Christ or to die for Christ in the midst of suffering. He has both options always available to him. Which means that deliverance from his suffering once for all, to Paul meant that he would probably die. He saw his life as a continual experience of suffering. And when death came, his suffering would end But he would be delivered because his death would be in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he was living, the suffering that he experienced was in service to the Lord Jesus Christ. And while he was suffering, he would also be delivered in the midst of his life from his suffering because he knew that he could face the suffering with courage and hope. That's what deliverance meant to Paul. That's what deliverance meant to Paul. And he says, I know, and he has this phrase, I don't know which one I will choose. Actually, a better translation would be, I don't know which one I prefer. I love deliverance. I love to be delivered in the midst of my suffering by enduring the suffering with courage, and I'd love to be delivered from my suffering by dying for Christ. And he says, actually, that would be better. I don't know what I would prefer, because it's not really... A choice for Paul because Jesus Christ holds the keys to death in Hades and and Jesus Christ will determine when he will relieve Paul of his suffering through dying and so he says I know that if I continue to live a life of suffering in the service of Christ with courage that is going to increase your growth and maturity And it's going to increase your joy, so therefore I'm confident that I'm going to stick around for a while longer. 
because he sees in the Philippian church room for growth and improvement. Because there's disunity in the church. He's writing this letter because even though they've been pretty significant participants and supporters with him in the progress of the gospel, there is disunity that is that is corrupting their ability to serve in a one-minded way in the progress of the gospel. Somehow it's affecting their support of Paul, which we'll increasingly see as we go through the letter, and somehow it is breaking down their courage in being vocal witnesses of Jesus Christ in their culture. I was reading this week, uh, one one, uh, scholar is asking the question, why out of all of Paul's letters do we not see such emphasis on the requirement that Christians be vocally testifying to the gospel of Jesus Christ, except in this one letter? In no other letter do we see a strong emphasis that is pushing the church towards being a witness for Christ through their words. His argument is that it is because for some reason, and I think think there are hints and indications of it in other texts, but certainly you don't have the emphasis that it does have here in Philippians. He says in, he noticed in the Philippian church through, his, through the testimony that he received from Epaphras who was visiting him from Philippi, he noticed that the church was weakening in its bold testifying of Christ. Weakening in their willingness to share the gospel. So because of that, he's got to write a letter. And they stopped sending him support they stopped sending him financial support. That's in chapter 4. We'll see that. Now, they started it back up again. They sent a gift through Epaphroditus to Paul when he came to visit. And Epaphroditus then gave the report of how the Philippians were doing. But there was a season where they had stopped their support. So they had stopped their support and they had stopped giving testimony because of the opposition that they were facing. And so he's writing this letter. He's writing this letter. He knows that without his continued ministry to the Philippian church, they would not progress in the faith, and they would not experience a greater joy, and they would not grow as a church in strengthening their witness to the outside world. So that he knew that for Christ to be magnified through his life and through the life of the church, he needed to stay. Because Christ is working out his purposes to demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The church is magnifying the beauty, the power, the wisdom, the grace, the love, the creativity. All aspects of who God is, is being made known through the church. And the church in its ability, and this is why unity is so critical, and this is why Jesus Christ prayed for it, the church, through their loving unity with each other, devoted to the progress of the gospel in their lives and the progress of the gospel in the world, is the greatest manifestation of the grace and love of God that can be seen. Because because the enemy, when he began to have his effect on this earth, if you think of man and woman in the garden, immediately when they when they disregarded god and choose to be their own gods it it created 
alienation with each other. Man and woman hid from each other and covered themselves. And they hid from God, separated themselves from God. They're no longer one-minded in, me, in what it meant for be a, to, to be uh, human beings on the face of the planet, to reflect the image of God and to have dominion over the earth. They were no longer one-minded in purpose. And they were no longer loving towards each other and unified with each other. And so Christ is doing the work of bringing people back together in a unified fashion for the purposes of God, holding unity and love together that only God can do. So that's what, the, that's what God is doing through the church. And so Paul is saying, listen, for Christ to be fully magnified in this context, I know I'm going to stick around because this church needs me. They need me in order to help them get over their disunity and their lack of love, which is why he prays. I pray that their love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment so that they can understand and choose the things that are excellent. They're starting to make choices in their lives that are pulling them away from each other and pulling themselves out of the mission of God. And so he, in his own story, is giving an example. I'm facing suffering you're facing suffering i'm going to rejoice because i know that my suffering will bring deliverance i will not be ashamed if i die it's going to be for jesus if i live it's going to be for jesus i will stand in this place with courage and that's what he's wanting them to do that's what he's wanting them to do and paul can say that to them because who's going to say back to paul Paul, you don't know the suffering that we're going through. He does. Paul, I'm really lonely and I can't get over it. He's stuck in prison by himself with only opposers around him. Paul, I'm tired. Paul, I'm physic- I've been beaten. Paul, I'm s- There's nothing that you could tell Paul that he wouldn't be able to say back to you, I understand I've been there. And if you take it one step further, there's nothing that we could say to Jesus Christ back to him without him being able to say, no, I've been there, which is why the argument in Hebrews is so strong. He is a priest that goes before us in our own sufferings. And we can go to him because he does understand what it means to be human flesh. And so we have this command given to us by Paul, ultimately through Jesus Christ, to rejoice in the midst of our suffering to rejoice in the midst of our suffering and so then he comes along and says i urge you therefore to stand firm as one with one spirit with one mind for the progress of the gospel and so what does he mean by this well he starts the the text out with this phrase let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel or only live in a way that's worthy of the gospel now we're used to passages in the new testament that say things like uh, walk in christ or live in christ this is not that same phrase this phrase the the word manner of life it, it actually, and I, and I wish the translation could, could do a better job of reflecting it. Um, it is a word that means, and we have no English term for it, 
it is a term that means um, community life. It actually is a life, let your life as a citizen. That's what he's saying. It doesn't make any sense if you would translate it that way into English, but he's saying, let your community life. It's one word. It's a, it's a word that describes a way of life that a community is supposed to hold to. They would, the, the, the contemporary uh, culture would use the term to define what it meant to be a citizen of the polis or of the city. So it was, a, it was an understanding about the way a person was supposed to live in the context of a people. And so what Paul is saying here is that the people of Christ have a way of life about them, and it is defined by a few characteristics. He says, first of all, I want you to stand firm with one spirit. What's it mean to have one spirit? It means to have an inner attitude or disposition that is unified together as a whole. It is an inner being, not external conformity. He's saying, I want your, I want your inner lives. I want your inner attitude and disposition to be one. Then he says, I want you to have one mind. So their inner attitude and then their thinking, their desires, and their affections. So spirit, thinking, desires, and affections are all to be one thing. They're all to be one. You are to be striving side by side, which means that we are going to toil together. Our Christian life lived before God is not an individualistic pursuit. Christ is working to glorify God to show his manifold wisdom as a church if people don't come together in unity and in love for each other and for the world for the purpose of the progress of the gospel the gospel's not having its intended effect Christ did not die so that we as individuals could faithfully walk before God as individuals Christ died to bring us together into a people and to live in a loving and unified fashion together as people we can't, there is no Christian life outside of us being unified together. Striving side by side, which means that we are going to engage in a common pursuit with one inner attitude, one way of thinking, one set of desires, one set of things that we love against opposition, because it's going to be hard. And our opposition is not flesh and blood, as Paul says in Ephesians, but spiritual rulers and authorities in the heavenly places that manifest themselves through human traditions and people like colossians 2 says so we're going to face human opposition but the ultimate opposition is the is the is the work of satan and the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places which is this spiritual realm of dark beings who have always been at work to deny god and dishonor god and so we are the the, the counterforce we are the counterforce. Jesus Christ, through his spirit, working in us to bring us to love and unity, together striving for the faith of the gospel. And that's where we see our ultimate purpose. All right, we are called to be unified. We are called to strive together. We are called to have one spirit, one thinking, one set of desires, one set of feelings and affections. For what? The faith of the gospel. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean for the faith of the gospel? 
Well, here I would say this, and it's going to unfold throughout the letter, but it means, excuse me, it means that the, 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 the work that the gospel has in our own persons, in our own families, in our own church, and in the work of the world, if we contend as one man with one spirit, with one mind, for the faith of the gospel, that means that all of us are coming together to see the gospel have its effect in this world and the manifestation of the kingdom of God in this place. The, the, the progress of the gospel, the faith of the gospel growing is something that occurs at every level individual family church world that is what we are ultimately committed to so every command in the scripture has something to do with affecting us affecting our families affecting our church affecting the world around us we see here in Philippians that our conduct is tied to our speech if we share the gospel with people that don't know Jesus Christ but our life is not living worthy of the gospel there's no testimony to the gospel and the gospel's witness is destroyed if we only live our life worthy of the gospel but never communicate the hope of the reason why we have such a life then the gospel witness is destroyed as well we have to have the words and we have to have the life that's what we're committed to as a people regardless of what station in life we find ourselves in. Paul is writing, as we saw here, emphasis, emphasized in chapter 1 in his prayer, this term all. He uses the word all like nine times in his introduction. All of the church, the elders, the deacons, and all of the saints. All of us are to be committed to this purpose whether we are men or women or children, employer, employee, slave, free, husband, wife, single, it doesn't matter who we are or what we do. Our work, our families, our callings, our free time, our community life, everything that we do is to have some effect towards the progress of the gospel in us and through us that's what Paul's saying I want you to live a life in this fashion and disunity undermines it disunity under, undermines it and he concludes that imperative the first imperative in the book the first command of the book to live a life worthy of the gospel one spirit one mind it's assumed that we are going to have opponents. It is assumed that we are going to have opponents to the advancement of the gospel. Now those opponents are going to come from all angles. And we're going to see that those aren't necessarily just opponents that don't want us to talk about Jesus. Okay, sometimes op opponents are in the church. Sometimes we are opposed to each other. We're not to be opponents to each other. We're to strive for unity with each other. Sometimes opponents is just, are just the, the, the aspects of suffering in this world because Paul is going to say in chapter 2 not to grumble or complain about anything. Okay, he didn't say 
don't grumble or complain about those people who oppose your testimony of Jesus. He says, do not grumble or complain about anything. Sometimes our opponents are the most mundane of things. Chapter 4, he's going to tell us to think on things that are honorable and noble and of good repute, good repute and are of truth. Why? Because there are things that we can think about that oppose Jesus Christ, or there's the things that we can think about that have nothing to do with anything good or the progress of the gospel. So opponents come in a lot of fashion, but he's specifically speaking here of opponents that are going to come against us. And he says, opposition to your efforts to live for the faith of the gospel. So holding up the faith. Holding up a faith. There, there are going to be people that are opposed to you holding up of the faith. And that is going to be a sign. That you're facing opposition is a sign that they are going to be destroyed. And it's a sign that you're on the right track. So Paul interprets the opposition that he faces not as something that he's doing something wrong, but quite the opposite. The fact I'm facing opposition as I strive for the faith of the gospel means that I'm doing the right thing. I'm doing the right thing. It is a sign. It says it's a sign of my deliverance. It's the same word that he used in the beginning of this passage. I am confident of my deliverance. And another way he's confident of his deliverance is that he's being opposed. So opposition when we try to communicate the gospel to people, opposition in our lives just to try to be faithful family members, faithful church members, things that try to undermine our unity, things that try to undermine our love, just the toils and the sufferings that we experience in this world, those are signs. Our fight against them is a sign that we are making an effort to forward the kingdom of God. To forward the kingdom of God. And so, he says at the very end, he says, for it has been granted to you to not only to believe on Jesus Christ for his sake, but to suffer for his sake. It has been granted to you, knowing that, knowing that you will experience and have the same conflict that I do. Now the term granted there, for it has been granted to you, the term is, is, is literally the same term that Paul uses in other books to refer to spiritual gifts, grace gifts, charisma. It is a gift of God's grace to you that you suffer for his name. And understanding that is the only way that we can go along with Paul and ultimately with Jesus in the, in the midst of our sufferings and say, I am rejoicing. Praise God for this trial that I'm going through. Or to obey James chapter 1, I, I consider this all joy. Why? Because whatever the suffering is, whether it's opponents, okay, Paul is addressing opponents here, but again, as I've said, we're going to go through chapters 2, 3, and 4, and we're going to see things that come up that oppose their unity and love that aren't just opponents, okay? Trials in our life 
will eat away at Christ's purposes in us. So whatever those trials are, whatever those sources of suffering are, if we want to strive for the face of the gospel, we are going to look at those sufferings and we are going to say, I don't know how I'm going to be delivered from this trial, but I will be delivered because I know this. I am going to live with courage in the midst of this trial so that Christ is honored as I go through this trial. We can determine that. We can determine that. Now, the logical next question in the face of Paul's comments about himself and his command for us to rejoice and his imperative that we would live a life worthy of the gospel in the face of bitter opposition and trial so that we could be one-minded the question then is how the question then is how and the next and, and Paul is thinking this Paul is is aware of where his audience would be at this moment because um, they're not close to unity they're not close to love they're they're doing it but there are some very clear and obvious fissures in their community life as a church there are places where they are disunified and everybody knows about it that's why he says all the elders know about it the deacons know about it the whole church knows about it the whole church knows that they didn't send a few months of support to paul the whole church knows that there's a big conflict in the church that's dividing everybody up the whole church knows that there is anxiety existing and abiding in the church the whole church knows this and so Paul has got these, these commands for us to be one-minded, one inner being, one set of desires and affections, one way of thinking about what our purpose is as a people, one love. And they're like, how do I do that? How do we do that, Paul? So the next chapter, the next chapter is, is this beautiful hymn about Jesus. And about how Jesus went through the same process because the Hebrews teaches that teaches us that that Jesus Christ learned obedience through suffering Jesus Christ learned obedience through suffering not that he was disobedient but suffering is what brought him to the point of being able to have the faith to endure the cross but Paul gives some hint before we so I don't want to say hey we'll come back next week for chapter 2 there's enough here there's enough here our suffering is a grace given to us that will yield progress and joy just as Christ's suffering and just as Paul's suffering was if we're going to be people that claim the gospel the, the gospel is the proclamation of the God King man who came to earth as an infant baby in the full weakness of humanity lived life among the people that he created and from the people that he created a called out people that were to live according to his name the Jews lived his life for 33 years and at the end of that life was killed by the very people that he called out and created in both the Jews and the Romans so all Jews and Gentiles are responsible for the death of Jesus Christ was killed 
violently, buried for three days, and resurrected from the grave, lived for another 30 or 40 days on earth, and then was ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of the king. That is a silly message. That is a silly message. A suffering, God comes as a man to suffer as a man. And through that suffering, experienced a greater degree of joy. That's what Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 tells us. For the joy set before him, Christ scorned the shame of the cross and endured its shame and suffering and is now seated at the right hand of God as a man. Paul is following in that same... If we're going to be people that claim the gospel, what we're claiming is, a, is, a, is an entire world and cosmos based upon the suffering of Jesus Christ and his glorification that came later. So if, if we're going to be a, a people that, that, whose, whose core identity is founded in the message of a suffering God-man then suffering, suffering should have um, a very profound place in our hearts and minds because it's what we're ultimately called to follow, that we can pursue and endure the sufferings of this world with the same courage and fortitude that Christ and Paul did because that's what they're calling us to. Now, the only way to get there is to deepen in our experience of the gospel. Which means that it's going to be a lifetime of being tested and grown through suffering, just like Jesus. If Jesus learned obedience through suffering, we're going to learn obedience through suffering. I met with a, a coach and mentor of mine uh, that I've known for over 20 years. He's an older man, about 10 years older than I am. Um, working with the network of house churches in Des Moines. We met in Ankeny um, on Friday morning and just catching up. And, and uh, you know, I, I began to talk to him of, of my regrets as I look back, things that we could have done different in order to alleviate ours or the people that we love suffering now. And, and, and I have a perspective of regret in the gospel, and I, I firmly believe and don't and don't sit in places of regret because I believe it is and antithetical to the gospel. But yet still my language was going there. And, and my disposition goes there at times. In the face of suffering that we're experiencing or the people that we love are experiencing and, and we have some fault or I have some fault in that suffering, and he just said, George, you only know what you know. It can, and you can only live to the place of maturity that you've come to. And one of the things that I'm thankful for, for the sufferings that we've experienced in our lives, is the increasing awareness of the, the truth, okay, the truth. My aspirations are there. I'm slowly bringing my mind and my desires and my affections into this place where I know the truth is. And that's what, that's what Paul is doing in here. He's 
pushing that truth out there for us to aspire to. I know that there is a comprehension of the gospel out there that I can experience that will wash away my feelings of regret. To the point where I will be able to say that the good God has done good things through our suffering and through the suffering that others experience, I don't know what it is. I don't know how I'm going to be delivered. But I need to see that my deliverance is not the removal of the suffering, but my deliverance is my holding fast to the gospel with courage in the midst of that suffering. And in that, the beauty of the gospel is seen, and that is when the testimony of the gospel emerges, and the people around us say, my goodness, look at the suffering that, those, that, that he's endured, that, that family's endured, that that church has endured, and look at their disposition towards it. There is something unique and different about that person. What is it? And then we can understand why Peter tells the, the churches he's writing to, always have a, he says, always have a reason for the hope that is within you. Hope in the midst of suffering gives cause for people to ask us, how can you face the suffering that you do with such grace and hope? So, our applications are endless. And we're going to see a lot through the book of Philippians. But it challenges us here in just a few ways. When we face opposition or suffering, when we're feeling pain, do we start thinking negative and accusatory towards the people around us, towards the church, towards its leaders? That's why all, everybody's incorporated in this letter. Elders, deacons, all the saints. Leaders, are you, one, are you making decisions that are for the progress of the gospel or are you making decisions for your own sakes? Church, are you, are you supportive of the leaders? Are you coming around the support of the gospel? Are you coming around the efforts to progress the gospel? Are you engaged in bitter fights and attacks with each other? Are you undermining efforts because, man, things get hard and toilsome? The applications are endless. Deliverance from all of our suffering and toil as people, as Christians, comes when we come together for the purpose of the gospel and are committed to unity in the midst of that effort. We're not going to be perfect in it. But that's our goal. That's what we press towards. And if we press towards that with a clarity on the gospel, then we can get there. Then we can get there. And we can set aside our petty differences. We can set aside the complaining and grumbling. We can set aside the obstacles. And we can see it's, it's incredible. And it's a high calling. We can see these things as gifts, grace gifts from God that are a sign of our deliverance and the means through which the gospel is going to go forward. Let me pray.